0: Hey everyone, um, we've got a very, very exciting uh, interview for you guys today. We're here with uh, Professor Asamoglu from MIT. Uh, and to give you a bit of background, we were researching a video. Um, one of our team sort of had this question, which is, you know, we look at economies around the world and that's what we do sort of every week on, on Economics Explained. And, you know, some of them are doing very well, some of them are doing very poorly. And it tends to be for a variety of different reasons on a national level, sometimes, you know, down to a local individual level. But there's one thing that we found was relatively universal, and that's that the continent of Africa uh, as a whole tends to lag behind the rest of the world, certainly places like Europe, North America, South America, and and these days, uh, even Asia. And the question that we had was, was why? Now, it's always a bit foolhardy to lump together so many countries, 54 countries in Africa, into one universal group and and, uh, assign one key reason. But the universalness of it sort of raised our suspicions. Now, fortunately, in our research, we came across a paper simply titled, Why is Africa poor? <laughs> very simple, very straight to the point. And it was written by one of the most prolific academic economists, uh, probably in the history of the professor, uh, Professor Arsene Moglu, who is here speaking with us today, which we're very grateful for. You probably know him best um, from his legendary book, Why Nations Fail. And we'll get into it, but uh, he revealed to us that this paper in particular was a bit, of a, a bit of a dry run as it came out two years before that was published. Uh, and it covers a lot of the same issues, which made our job certainly extremely easy. So, Professor uh, Asamoglu, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for
1: all you're doing for explaining economics to a broad audience.
0: Well, yeah, that's uh, we do what we say on the label, I guess. Uh, now, b- <laughs> now, before we get into the specific nitty-gritty of Africa itself, I think this sort of certainly pertains more to the book Why Nations Fail, which I'm sure a lot of our audiences has heard of, if not read themselves. And if they haven't read it, I definitely recommend it because even for you know even for a novice, I think it's pretty understandable. It doesn't get too jargony like a lot of academic economics books tend to. And I think it's a really great introduction to to have, think about economic systems, certainly at a macroeconomic scale, which can be quite intimidating. But the big thing that you focus on in the book is the role of institutions. Just sort of briefly, can you explain to us, you know, what you mean by by the role of institutions in determining economic success from economic failure, um, and how that sort of applies to you know our modern economies, but also developing economies from the past and Developing economies going on currently. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, you know,
1: James Robinson, my friend and long-run collaborator, and I wrote why nations fail, because we think there is a striking fact that everybody should be thinking about, which is a huge gap between part of the world, including sub-Saharan Africa, which we're going to talk about, the Caribbean, parts of Asia, parts of Central America, and you know, the US. Western Europe, you know, despite the globalized, connected, integrated world that we live in, you know, these former group of countries are typically one tenth, one twentieth, sometimes one 40th the income per capita level of the rich nations. It's even hard for us, you know, sitting in uh, Australia or Cambridge, Massachusetts, U.S., to imagine how you would live with just one twentieth of the money that you have. So even in this sort of transformative time there are just these amazing gaps between different countries and of course this has not escaped people's attentions and they've come up with explanations based on you know macroeconomic policies inflation budget deficits and so on geography you know the world is full of different countries with different endowments different geographic conditions different diseases culture you know culturally you know humans have developed you know very very different Traditions, very different, different belief systems. But what Jim and I argue is that while these other factors are present as well, institutions, meaning how humans have shaped the rules of the economy and the rules of politics and the rules of society via laws, norms, constitutions, other institutional practices, are first order. Because institutions shape the incentives, constraints, and the enabling factors for society. So If, you know, you and I are lucky today to be relatively prosperous, that's partly because we got some decent education. So that's part of the institutions. And then from that education, we were able to enter the labor market and come up with some occupations and things for us to do. Well, if you look at, you know, many countries, that kind of thing would not be possible. So if you go to South Africa, we're already jumping to Africa, but if you go to South Africa... For much of its existence, the country did not allow its black citizens to enter into a very range of occupations from, you know, semi-skilled manufacturing work to white collar work and other sort of expert work because, you know, they were pushed to being, you know, miners and agricultural workers and unskilled producers. So that sort of environment is not going to be conducive for people like you and me to build the prosperity. It's not about culture, it's not about geography. There was nothing about the geography of South Africa that made it so that they should severely discriminate against 85% of the population and repress them to work at very low wages. There was nothing about the culture. It was really about these institutional settings that emerged. And once you start thinking about institutions, it's a very rich sort of area for us to investigate because it pushes you into history. It makes you think about how you can try to Distort institutions and rules for your favor. And that in particular means, you know, people again giving an example from sub Saharan Africa, how you can set up very diverse institutions such as marketing boards and such as, you know, uh, communal land relations or chiefdoms and things like that in order to be able to extract resources from others. And even more importantly, it also shows how you can distort political processes. You know, think of Mugabe in Zaire, I mean, in, in Mugabe in, in Zimbabwe, or uh, Mobutu in Zaire. You know, what they did wasn't just economic extraction, they also distorted the entire political system so as to keep power. And all of these things feed into this poverty process that is so important to understand the kind of world we live in today.
0: Yeah, and I think that's um, something that we, we tend to take for granted is that, you know, I can enter into a, a business deal with you? Is there something as simple as that? And there are processes, where if you, you know, renege on the deal or run away with my money, or don't uphold your end of the bargain, I can take you to something as simple as a, as a court. And it's going to be relatively impartial and fair. And that allows certain economic operations to happen that just wouldn't be possible where, you know, those institutions weren't in place. Obviously, that's a an incredibly simple example. You've given much more specific ones there. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that's just, you know,
1: we take so many things for granted and that's part of human existence. But actually stepping back and asking those questions, just like you ask, is so important for bettering our institutions and defending our institutions. You know, look, something as small as, you know, I uh, get a contractor to come and do some work in my house. You know, that's based on The fact that, yes, I can take that person to court, but there are also norms. You know, if you're an electrician, you know, you're certified and you have some pride in your work and there are some norms. So, you know, we live in a community and if as an electrician, you come to my house and you do nothing and you charge me money, the word is going to spread and you're going to be ostracized in society. And also, you know, we live in a system, not like a dictatorship, like a personal dictatorship, like the example of Mugabe and Mobutu that I have given that I can come back to where, you know, the electrician has to worry about me being a cousin of the dictator and then I can, you know, rob him at the end or not pay him because the court system wouldn't work if, I, if, if he took me to the court. So there's all these things. But unless we sort of appreciate the complexity of the institutions and how they have evolved, we don't defend them. We don't try to better our legal system and, and ask how we can improve our legal system. And most importantly, and that's what we're seeing in the United States today, we don't defend democracy. We take democracy for granted and when that happens, it's uh, it's much more
0: fragile. It's more threatened by people who want to monopolize power. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting point, and uh, we will come back to that because I think sometimes these lessons are a bit abstract for for people, uh, especially me. I you know I've been to to South Africa once in my life, and I was you know. Basically, very shelter. I remember I landed on an airplane, basically, and got into an armoured car, drove to a gated community, and that's where I spent 90% of my time until it was time to leave. It was completely removed from the experience of 90% of the population there. And the one other thing, a lot of people haven't even had sort of that experience. So bringing it back to, well, hang on, this is still a relevant lesson for, for us and our, our very privileged economies, I think is is really important. But one thing I did want to ask is, the, the lesson of the institutions, I think, is, is really important and I think it's really interesting. But I still come back to the fact that across Africa it's it's almost sort of been a universal failure to develop these institutions. And I almost want to be like that annoying child that keeps on asking why. Why is it that this is so such a universal problem across Africa? Whereas, you know, in other regions around the world, there are certainly pockets of these failures, but it's not the universal experience. Now one thing that you've sort of already mentioned and, and almost dismissed there is is geography. Um, now, in our research, one thing that a lot of economists focus on is the geography of Africa. It's quite harsh you know, for early societies, um, for a very mean wildlife, a soil that wasn't particularly fertile, a lot of tropical diseases which kind of splintered people into, into tribal groups rather than coming together as a society. And perhaps that, especially with the fact that it was disconnected from Europe, the Middle East, and, and Asia meant that maybe it was isolated from the development of, of norms there. Do you think there's anything to that, or do you think that's a like a separate issue? Yeah, there is there is some something to that. I never meant to
1: say geography doesn't matter. Look, you, just let me give you a non-African example to start with, and then uh, we can jump into Africa. You know, can you understand Ukraine today without its geography? No, its entire history, especially recently, is because of the place that it is in, you know, next to Russia. So that's geography. And you cannot understand Saudi Arabia without its geography, meaning its endowments, oil. If Saudi Arabia didn't have oil, it would be a very different place today. So there are geographic factors that matter. But the question to which James Robinson and I gave a categorical answer, categorical no, is, is geography the main factor that explains the large gaps in income per capita and in prosperity around the world? And the answer to that is no. Institutions are overwhelmingly more important. You know, you are absolutely right. Sub-Saharan Africa is really a jarring case of poverty, failure to develop economically, failure to, to build industry and prosperity. But there are exceptions. Botswana is one of the fastest growing countries over the last 60 years since its independence. And if you look at Botswana, it has all of the problems that others attribute to Africa. It is a landlocked country. It is not an easy country to navigate because of its you know richness of all sorts of uh, natural barriers to moving around and uh, other issues. It has diamonds which have been called a curse for other African countries. It also started its independence period, dirt poor and without much road or any type of educated elite. But it built better institutions for a variety of reasons. We can get into them if you are interested. But it built better institutions. It created stable property rights. It created a democracy that has worked reasonably well over time. It uh, never led to a system where the court system was biased towards one group versus another. It invested in people, in education, in public infrastructure. It managed the diamond uh, wealth well, and it's achieved this relatively high level of income. Mauritius is another example. Again, same story. Better institutions, better growth within Africa. So it's not that every African country is doomed to failure. And when they start improving
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I think we actually use those as, um, as sort of outliers. Uh, the Seychelles, Mauritius, and, and Botswana. I think they all have over sort of 20000 ish US dollars GDP per capita these days, which is um, pretty good. I mean, you know, middle, middle to, to lower income, middle-lower income by European North American standards, but still hopefully a sign of uh, good things to come. And we will get back to that as well. you're Your uh, sort of reading my mind, and, w- and the sort of direction I wanted to, to go with this. But I did want to circle back to, you know, I think people are looking for, c- certainly me. You know, it, it's nice when we can sort of say there's one universal, underlying, foundational thing that has that has caused these problems. Now institutions, there's this failure of institutions across the, the countries in Africa. Yeah you know, with exceptions, which is fantastic. If it wasn't that, why is it that institutions have failed so frequently in Africa, whereas in places like Europe, there's there's either sort of been relatively universal success or at least sort of pockets of success that have kind of uh, led, to, led to economic prosperity? Yeah,
1: that's the $1 million question. And indeed, exactly like you say, Michael, I have argued and I argue that institutions are the most important factor for explaining Africa's relative poverty it doesn't account for 100% but it is the most important feature that's simple how institutions functions is a little bit more complicated as we talked about the ways in which they distort economic incentives and economic behavior but the really complicated thing is why are institutions in a country today the way they are and that's a historical process there is randomness there's contingency there is human agency some leaders acting the way that they did again if i were to give one example i would pick botswana because we couldn't understand botswana's democracy and institutions without its first independence leader seretse Kama, who behaved very differently from you know people like mugabe mobutu and krumah and instead of trying to you know manipulate things in order to remain in power and use corruption steadfastly stuck to the line of, I'm going to build better institutions, I'm going to build a stable system, and so on. So all of those things are important. But uh, in a nutshell, if you want to understand African institutions, you know, if you go far back in history, Africa also had vibrant kingdoms, city-states, and trading ports. But already by the 15th century, it seems like Africa had fallen behind in terms of economically. And that has several reasons. Some of them random related to the historical process. Some of them related to their interactions with the Arab world. And some of them perhaps related to the difficulty of starting to build states in Africa where building unified states was difficult even before European contact. But then after European contact, colonialism had a massive impact on the development of African institutions. And here by colonialism, I mean both the direct colonialism and the indirect one, like such as the slave trade, which was devastating to parts of Africa. And the slave trade, both coming from Europeans and the uh, Arabs, was both very pernicious because it robbed Africa of its productive people, but also it led to warring distrust people running away from the main centers of population because they didn't want to be captured. So all sorts of second-order effects that really delayed the development of institutions. And then came the direct colonization, the scramble for Africa. The Belgian Congo under King Leopold is the most vivid example of naked repression and naked, really vicious exploitation. Some of the British colonies were like that. Some of them were a little better. Many French colonies were like that. And then came independence. And at independence, you know, some of Africa had the beginnings of a bureaucratic system, a court system, et cetera, that Europeans had themselves had set up. But those were mostly in the main population centers, in the main urban centers. They had not penetrated society. They had not become completely legitimized. In fact, Europeans often destroyed more legitimate indigenous institutions when they tried to build their own for reasons of control, for example, the British colonizing Nigeria. They tried to introduce their own ruling families in places like Sierra Leone as well. And when they left, the shell, the skeleton of institutions were not very useful for building new economic activities, but they were very amenable for a strongman to take them over and use them for extraction. So as a result, independence was associated in much of Sub-Saharan Africa, with an intense infighting between different ethnic groups and different uh, strong men in order to take control of these institutions. They led to civil wars, especially in places where there were natural resources, such as oil, diamonds, or gold. And it led to even worse institutional pathways because, you know, the armies got stronger, private security details got stronger, court systems were run down. You know, Sierra Leone, this is an example we mentioned in Why is Africa Poor, as well as the Why Nations Fail book. For example, Siaka Stevens, when he came to power, he thought that the railways were helping the South, and he was getting his support from the North, so he wanted to hurt the South, so he actually destroyed the railway network. So, you know, when you have stories like that, you see this has nothing to do with culture or geography, and it has everything to do with how institutions have Played an important role before independence, at independence, and after independence, they got even worse.
0: Yeah, I think maybe I'm looking too far into this, but it's, or maybe I'm sort of seeing a connection where there isn't one. But the colonial empires were set up to, you know, exploit Africa for its resources, its, its manpower, and and harvest that and take it back to to Europe, you know, sort of a centralized point. So it almost makes sense that the the power vacuum was filled. By other institutions that were designed to harvest resources and bring them back to a to a central point as well, are they just replacing you know European colonizers with a dictator that sort of managed to seize power? I I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it was almost sort of set up from the get go. Absolutely, I think all of the colonial enterprise can be understood from the
1: desire by Europeans, especially European elites, but sometimes even the middle class, to get rich. That meant go and conquer more lands, get some resources out of it. It was, you know, dreams of gold and silver that drew uh, Europeans to, you know, go around the Cape of Good Hope and discover the new world. And later, when they found big population centers, they put people to coercive work in order to use that labor for agriculture, for mining and other things. And uh, they also found other ways of engaging exploitative behavior, for example, in the destruction of uh, the textile industry in India. But not all of these colonial efforts led to the same thing because they encountered different conditions on the ground. When Europeans found large populations and existing proto-state institutions, they were very quick in taking them over, adapting them for their own need, making them more repressive And using it for coercing labor and using it for extraction. When they uh, faced resistance, when they didn't find big population centers, or when they thought the land was mostly empty, sometimes it was really empty, sometimes it wasn't, where like in Australia and North America, where there were indigenous populations, but they went and settled in large numbers. And then that led to a very different institutional path. It's actually, Sarah, very interesting. If you look at, for instance, the English. Colonialism in North America—it very much followed the playbook of the Spaniards. The Spaniards had colonized the Inca and the Aztec and the, and the lands that used to be the Maya, and they they found big riches. They tried to make themselves the elite and put the existing people to work. And the English saw that and they said, "We have to do the same thing." But you know, since South America is taken, the only place left is North America. So let's go to North America, and they. They formed the Virginia Company, and people thought that Virginia Company was going to make a lot of money, just like the Spaniards had made. So they started buying shares in Virginia Company, and it had the support of the Queen. That's why it's called the Virginia Company. And leading people from England became its officers, and they went to places like Jamestown, and then they encountered completely different conditions. They couldn't make the colonial strategy of the Spaniards work. So they tried different things. None of that worked. And at some point they pulled out and they left people to start building self-governing institutions. None of that happened in Africa because Africa was already densely settled in many parts. And uh, there were already existing state structures and uh, disease environment meant that Europeans didn't want to go and settle there. So they tried to develop a much more exploitative relationship with, with Africa. Now, is it a complete coincidence that Botswana is the one country that has had Uh, this explosive growth, this amazing economic performance since independence. Well, as I mentioned, there is human agency, there is luck, but also Botswana was completely secondary to the British Empire. They didn't really bother with it much. They didn't, you know, send their people there to set up control. So in some sense, for people who say, oh, you know, Europeans built institutions in, in colonial Africa. And uh, if only the independence leaders had used these institutions, things would be different. Botswana is a striking counterexample. Botswana's advantage was that the British did not try to build any institutions or any control. They just left it be, more or less. So it meant that, for example, the pre-colonial tribal institutions survived and became the basis of building a democracy in Botswana.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting That's an interesting point. And I, I, I think I'm almost asking a, a bit of a silly, almost too obvious question here, which is, you know, obviously... African colonialism was horrendous. I think we made a we made a point in the video that we're putting together. A lot of the details we, we can't even mention because it would just get taken off, off YouTube. A lot of the the conditions were too graphic to, to even sort of describe without imagery, and that is you know a, a stain on a stain on history. But it also wasn't you know the the only European colony, and I you know you look at counter examples like you know what would go on to be the USA and even places in South America to a lesser extent, but certainly you know, the USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. What is it that you think that made them, in many ways, more economically prosperous than, than they are? Yes, yeah, so the story there is, is very important. So thanks for
1: bringing it up, Michael. But it's exactly what I started telling in response to your previous question. What's common between Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand? And to some extent, Argentina, you can put into that bucket. As well, and Uruguay
0: perhaps. is a bit of a loose cannon, but... <laughs>
1: right, yeah, it is a bit of a loose cannon, but in terms of the way that their colonialism developed, they are what's called settler colonies. And settler colonies, from the beginning, followed a very different trajectory. Now, settler colonies did some terrible things, like uh, destroy some of the indigenous populations, so they're not innocent. But in settler colonies, for example, in the United States, what became the United States, against the wishes of the Virginia Company. People did not accept the coercive labor institutions that the, the colonialists, the, the colonial elites wanted to set up. So the Virginia Company's model was, okay, we're going to go there and we're going to find a population and we're going to put them to work and they're going to work in mines and they're going to work in agriculture. They went there and there weren't enough people around. The, only the native Indians in Jamestown uh, were both too few, and they weren't willing to sort of work for Europeans because they were not, you know, they were essentially uh, at the non-settled stage. They were very mobile and very warring. So they they went off that. And then their second strategy was, we'll bring indentured servants and we'll put them to work. They will be the second class citizens. And then we, the elite, the captains of industry and officers of the Virginia company, we're going to make money and we're going to enrich our queen and we're going to enrich our shareholders back in London. Well, so they brought the indentured servants, but that didn't work either because this was the open frontier. These people just said, okay, no, we're not going to stay here. We're going to pick up our things and go, and uh, and we're not going to be exploited. So at some point, they threw in the towel, and these indentured servants became the early settlers that started building the self-governing institution. The story is a little different in Australia, of course, which started in, as a penal colony, but there are many important parallels. You know, It's no surprise that Australia was a leader in democracy. And it wasn't like democracy was given to Australia by the English. The Australians, settlers, fought for democracy and were ahead of England in many things like the secret ballot and uh, and other democratic systems. Canada followed a somewhat different, but again, similar trajectory. So you see that that's actually a very different type of development. Now, there are intermediate cases where Europeans didn't settle, but they helped develop similar institutions, such as Singapore, Hong Kong, and there are other places where it was more like a mix, but it wasn't like uh, the, the worst kind of pernicious extractive institutions like Costa Rica. Costa Rica didn't have as much of an indigenous population as surrounding Central American places like Honduras, Guatemala, or Mexico. So Europeans developed a very different strategy in those places. So I think you're putting your finger on exactly the right thing. It's much more interesting to try to understand the diversity of experiences within the colon- European colonial empire than ask what's the effect of colonialism, because the effect of colonialism differs very much between Botswana and Kenya and the Belgian Congo. It differs very much between the United States and Mexico and Peru.
0: Yeah, that's that's great, and I think um, you've sort of put it into words so eloquently. all I was trying to, you know, I had the, these ideas sort of floating around in my mind. So, um, so thank you for that. I I, I think that's. That's great. Now I want to um, sort of maybe look a bit more forward into the future. Now I always have this this common joke that I make on the channel that no one can predict the future, least of all economists. I don't know if you agree with that. One hundred percent. One hundred percent.
1: And you know, the more you delve into institutions and historical processes, the more you realize that you know we can't even predict the past, let alone the future. What do I mean by that? You know, the neatest theories would be those that are deterministic. They say. You put this amount of force, and the pendulum goes to the right. You know that's a deterministic relation. Newtonian physics. That's the pinnacle of uh, predictive science. So we would like, if we could have something like that, we would love it. You know, factors X and Z lead to outcome Y. For example, you have this population density, these crops. That's going to lead to good type of colonialism, and this is going to lead to bad type of colonialism. Unfortunately reality is very different, you know. There's a lot of human agency. You cannot understand, as I said, Botswana without Saretsakama. If you, instead of Saretsakama, you had somebody like Mugabe in Botswana, things would have been very different. There's a lot of luck. When was a country exactly colonized? What was the detail? What were the details of the colonization strategy? How did the population respond? Uh, There are all these papers uh, from about a decade ago that show, for example, that during important events, for example, the, riot, the day of the murder of Martin Luther King, climatic conditions, whether there was rainfall or not, mattered a lot for how much of protests and uh, there were and where, where these protests went and then the reaction to these protests. So similarly, there are other random factors that play a very important role during what James Robinson and I call in our book critical junctures, these periods where there's a lot of choices there were a lot of choices about the future trajectory of institutions so that's the sense in which we cannot predict the past so if we had the thought experiment of take the world from say the year 500 BC and run it again perhaps it wouldn't be the europeans going and colonizing the new world perhaps it would be something else you know there are scholars such as jared diamond who is a brilliant mind and i respect him a lot like him a lot fantastic person he thinks that there were geographic and ecological reasons for being sure that it, you know if you run the world 500 more times, it will always be the Europeans who go and colonize the rest of the world. Well, I'm not as sure of that. So, so that's the sense in which we can't
0: even predict the past. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. I'll, I'll have to add that to the repertoire. Can't, economists can't predict the future, can't predict the past. Uh, you know, what, what do you guys keep us around for? I, I really <laughs> don't know. But uh, We can interpret it. Yes, and I think that's the important thing. I It's unfortunate because obviously, you know, even in a sort of a, a non-professional setting, that, that's all that people want us to do. It's like, oh, what do you, what do you think? is going to happen with interest rates this year. It's like, well, geez, I don't know. I don't think uh, I don't think anyone knows, not even the people that are, that are making up their minds. Um, and obviously, it becomes very important to issues like this. But I am going to, um, I'm going to try. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to break my own rule and sort of ask you sort of, what, what do you think? So the paper was written in 2000, well, it was released in 2010. And obviously, it's been nearly, you know, 15 years since then. And a lot has changed. You've mentioned Botswana a lot. In that time, there's been pretty targeted foreign direct investment, especially by China into into the continent. And there's also, unfortunately, been some negative developments, a lot of wars uh, in the Saharan region that we've sort of been covering on the channel. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of tensions at, at the moment um, around the Suez Canal. Eritrea's continued to, to have um, problems with, with Ethiopia. And it's, there's a lot of good things happening, a lot of bad things happening, but overall, do you see the continent moving in a in a positive direction since you you know released the paper, or, or are you not so optimistic?
1: You know, I would say that there was a period when the continent was moving in a much better direction. Many more countries were becoming democratic. There was more reaction against strongmen. You know, not everywhere. You know, Museveni was firmly in power and still is. Uh, you know, Mali never looked like it would be able to become a democracy anytime soon. But starting from around the time that I I began working on these things, you know, the 1990s, there was some optimism about, you know, Africa. South Africa made the most remarkable transition from apartheid to a full-fledged democracy. Uh, Many other countries like Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana were building much better institutions moving away from military control. And there was a flourishing of economic activity in parts of Africa in the 2000s. But I think we are going through the reverse cycle of the pendulum right now, and it's being helped by China. China first brought more of the bad kind of neocolonialism in Africa. And the term neocolonialism is controversial, and I'm not sure exactly what people mean by that, but it's Essentially, what I mean by interventionism to benefit itself at the expense of the people on the ground. The US has done that in the Cold War. You know, you cannot understand this very, very sorry state that the Democratic Republic of the Congo is in today without going to the Belgian colonization under King Leopold and without understanding the awful regime of Mobutu, which was very much supported by the United States and CIA. But China has notched that up and Especially at a time where the international community was encouraging Africa to build better legal institutions, better political institutions, control its wealth better, its natural wealth better. And and there are studies that are not conclusive, but they suggest that Chinese intervention in Africa has been bad for democracy. So I think this combination of weak institutions, Chinese intervention, You know, the world in crisis because of food prices and other things, I think has been tough on Africa. But I am hopeful that a number of countries, such as Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, are going to continue to struggle, but struggle in a positive direction because there is a lot of room, opportunities for economic flourishing in these countries. And I think they have a history that indicates how bad things will go with civil wars and with dictatorial regimes. They also have indigenous institutions and traditions that make them suspicious of naked power. So I think all of these things make me hopeful that there will be a slow, uneven progress towards more democratic institutions in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think once you have more democracy, that's going to be the best way of tackling the three big problems that Africa has. One is lack of state revenue. African countries raise very little in terms of tax revenue. As a result, they invest very little in their people, very bad, low quality education, health infrastructure being in shatters. All of these things, I think, can be much better tackled by democratic regimes.
0: It's interesting that you brought up uh, China and, and were so critical of their intervention, because I actually, we've in the past sort of covered their investment and, and also been quite critical, or at least skeptical, of their their actions there and i'm i was quite interested to see you had such a strong stance on it because i i saw a, a few weeks ago even i think bloomberg released an article of the the myth of debt trap diplomacy in china you don't want to sort of put you in a, a gotcha i don't know if you've sort of seen it but i have not seen it no yeah they seem to be sort of dismissive of the idea that oh you know china is just just there to spread you know good vibes and and, and do well by the country. and i thought oh that's that's an interesting perspective that doesn't
1: square with what I've seen on the ground, what I hear when I talk to well-informed African people, the population, especially the educated population, are very troubled, and uh, correlations and evidence that some people have presented, as I said, it's not, again, conclusive, but they tend to argue that, I have not done this research myself, but they tend to argue that when China invests big time, that democracy starts having a harder time in the relevant country. Yeah. And you know, and, and I know how the Chinese, these Chinese large companies work. The deals that they get are very uneven, and the way that they prop up corruption
0: is is quite blatant. That's interesting. I think I'll send you the article afterwards. But I think it was the, their their argument was that, uh, oh well, you know, they're making the risky investments, so of course it's going to be one sided. I was like, oh, that's uh, that's that's definitely a hot take. So I, I apologize for sort of putting you on the spot there. But I wanted. To- no, no, I'll, I'll have a look at it. I'm, I'm curious to see it yeah I wanted to uh, sort of get your thoughts. and obviously, attracting foreign investment is potentially going to be an important part of it. You know you referenced the fact that you know a lot of other economies around the world have managed to develop quite quickly because you know they didn't necessarily have to you know create new technologies from scratch. they were able to import it and use that to to leverage. They were able to to go through the sort of the development cycle far more quickly. There's obviously been problems with the way China's been doing it. But one of the reasons studying this so precisely is, is has been incredibly interesting and, and great for making you know, exciting videos about and sort of looking at some of these issues is I think it is important to direct the efforts of you know, aid and, and investment into Africa in a productive way. Do you have some kind of a prescription for how you'd see that being done well as opposed to you know, in a way that would only further the issues that we've, we've been talking about?
1: I think humanitarian aid is very important around the world. We have many crises. I don't want to discourage humanitarian aid, but I don't think Africa has benefited from foreign aid over the last sixty years. If you look at numbers that, you know, careful economic studies do produce, essentially they find something like if you give one hundred dollars so that, you know, it goes to a village in Nigeria or Uganda, about five dollars of that one hundred dollars actually reaches its destination. And on the way, the people who get to control the money are often the dictators that are at the root of the problem. There is a lot of wastage. There is a lot of misdirected investment. And I think foreign aid is not going to be the solution to Africa's problem. But on the other hand, the beginning of your question is exactly on target. Many African countries need foreign direct investment. They need technology and they need access to markets. African agriculture is not sufficiently productive and it's not because of climatic conditions or a geography it's because there has not been enough investment none of the new technologies being used the labor force has not been trained and educated enough to uh, reach higher productivity and moreover they don't have access to european markets to american markets with their agricultural produce you know african industry is hampered by difficulties of writing contracts bureaucratic interference corruption uh, insecurity of property rights uh, again those are institutional problems so I think if outsiders want to help Africa, they have to help African leaders build better institutions, and that the better institutions are going to be the conduit via which the people of Africa are going to invest more in themselves and more in their comparative advantage in order to be able to kickstart the flourishing.
0: You, you mentioned comparative advantage, which is sort of the, the final thing that I wanted to touch on, because there there are some advantages there. Certainly, as manufacturing centers in you know, Asia become more expensive, higher wage demands. You know, a lot of people are looking to Africa as, oh, hey, you know, here's a nice centre of new low-cost labour for low-cost manufacturing and things of that nature. But also, of course, for for all the that it's done, they also have trillions of dollars worth of natural resources that can be sort of, I don't want to say exploited. But do you think there is a path there where they, they could, you know, build out... Uh, be a center of low-cost manufacturing, or be you know productive resource economies, or is it just just too fragmented?
1: Let me give you two parts of that. You know, today China has tremendous international power, and it's not because it's a major exporter that plays a role, but it's because it is the biggest market. China has today's biggest middle class. German companies, French companies, Italian companies. Are always in fear of being excluded from the Chinese market because it's such a lucrative market. And so, as a result, China has tremendous amount of what well, you gotta gotta call it soft power or manipulative power or whatever it is. So it cannot uh, other countries cannot afford to say, for example, recognize Taiwan or talk about human rights issues in China. Now, in the next decade or so, Nigeria is gonna have a huge middle class or it's gonna have a huge population. You know, rivaling you know India and China, and uh, you know where are the goods and services for that middle class gonna come from? So there's gonna be a tremendous opportunity for Nigerian businesses to meet some of that demand, and that can be a major source of economic growth. Again, the question is, will we have the institutional foundations for making that a reality? And you mentioned natural resources. There's were some. You know, silly theories that said, oh, natural resources are a curse. If you have a natural resource, you're condemned to poverty. You know, how could that make sense? Look at Norway. Has oil been a curse for Norway? Or I mentioned the example of Botswana. Botswana grew so much, but that was helped greatly by diamonds. But then you're right, Sierra Leone, it led to civil war and the country's institutions were completely decimated. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, frequent exploitations, civil wars that are still ongoing. It's like a 20-year civil war, the Great War of Africa, Angola. So the examples are on both sides. So when you look into the details, what you see is that natural resources are a boon if you have good institutions, if you can develop them and use them embedded in a functioning court system, a stable macroeconomic system, and a democratic or quasi-democratic environment and they become the source of civil war or very bad regimes that remain in power by exploiting their people, such as Iran, if you start with awful institutions. So if Africa is able to improve its institutions, its natural resources will be an amazing resource for further
0: economic progress. I uh, often say, and maybe, maybe I oversimplify, but I I use the, uh, the sort of the analogy that natural resources are like a, like a tool, like a saw. They can be very productive if used correctly, but they can also do a lot of damage if used incorrectly. They can keep bad people in power. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I think that's, a, that's exactly the right perspective.
1: But except that I would add, you can use the saw for bad purposes and uh, harming other people. But in the case of natural resources, there's one other thing. There's also a possibility of civil wars over who's going to control the soil. And that's the that's been the real problem for many African countries. But that's avoidable if you have better institutions. You know, in Norway, we don't have a civil war over
0: oil. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, do you think there's any sort of merit to the fact that it's it's easier to sort of hold on to this absolute power if you do have something like natural resources that are, that are an easy revenue source? So they, they tend to embed bad elements.
1: Absolutely. 100%. Look at, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is doing okay because it has so much oil, but it has an awful, awful, awful regime that is really repressive. That has condemned its population to low education. It has consistently conspired with the worst parts of the clergy to brainwash and repress the population. But it can use these oil revenues to continue to repress the population and become even a local hegemon in the area. Iran. the Iran's regime is even worse than Saudi Arabia. And the only thing propping it up, that revolutionary guard, is
0: oil revenue. Yeah. And they make sort of a, a Faustian bargain with uh, the, the population. You know, well, let's just share in this revenue. You won't pay taxes. But, uh, you know, you got to toe the line. That's, um, yeah, that's interesting. I think that's a better way of looking at it than it's just it, it's generically a curse. It's it's a bad thing, or it's a good thing. It's it's a, a depends thing, and it can it can make bad things way worse, or or embed them, or it can make good things. You know, in the case of Norway, like Norway's just an amazing economy, but it's also been incredibly lucky with that. Yeah. Now I know we're almost uh, almost a time, and I don't want to keep you any longer than I absolutely have to, because I know you're a very busy man. But I do want to ask one very broad sort of question, just to top this all off, which is. You know, there's been this general development in the world that you know economies, you know, from from Europe, right, have gone from primarily agrarian to manufacturing to to the service economies, and we've sort of seen that it's been the, the logical progression. It started, you know, in Europe and, and North America. It's, it's taken place in a lot of economies in, in Asia, uh, even a few in in South America, and that's generally sort of been a great thing. It's lifted a lot of people out of poverty. But just like there are officially or unofficially sort of classes within an economy, on a global level, do you think there's only sort of so much room at the top? There's only going to be so many economies that can exist that are advanced service-based economies that are running, you know, multinational corporations, or do you think there's genuinely the opportunity for, the reason I say that is is a lot of that also depends on sort of exploiting or at the very least, liberally using services of, of other economies to, to harvest their comparative advantage? To, to bring a lot of wealth back to, let's say a place like the USA. So do you think there's this almost sort of it's going to be a case where the global economy just has to have, you know, some economies at the top, some economies in the middle, some economies at the bottom, or can it sort of buck the trend and and be a place where, you know, all of them can find a, a place to be truly advanced economies? Well again, it's a matter of choice. There's a vibrant debate in
1: social sciences about whether, you know, the West became rich by exploiting the rest of the world. Uh, I think there is truth to both sides of that debate. You know, uh, the British cotton textile industry expanded by destroying the Indian one, and, uh, and it was fueled by slave labor produced cotton from the US South. But I think on the whole, you can have many, many rich countries at the top, and it's not just one. And moreover, one of the general regularities is that As economies develop, agriculture becomes less important, then industry becomes more important, services become more important. That's partly because industry is becoming very productive, so it needs less labor, but it's also partly because people want to consume more services. They don't want, they won't want just the same, you know, big steel buildings and and, and the physical goods, but they want more services. And so that means that there's going to be a lot of room for creating service-led economic growth all around the world. Now, there are critical decisions, like, for example, where AI is going to go, who's going to control AI, who's going to control data. That's going to be important, not just for the United States, but it's going to be important for the developing world because AI decisions made in Silicon Valley are going to affect people in Africa, people in India. So I think there are many, many questions, but I believe that if we organize the world the right way, there would be possibility of prosperity for almost all of the world. So that it's not like some countries have to be impoverished for the rest to rise today.
0: Well, I'm glad you said that because that was a, a really nice, positive way to finish up what can be somewhat of a, a grim, rather depressing subject. But I really, really appreciate you making the time to give us your input on what's a you know, sometimes a very, very complex issue with many facets and the way that you are able to break it down and explain it so clearly. Absolutely fantastic. I know it's helped me a lot. I'm sure it will help uh, the viewers of the channel as well. And again, if you want to hear sort of more about this, I'll make sure to link the paper, Um, but most importantly, the book, which is sort of the extension of that to look at beyond Africa and and look at the rest of the world. And I I know we've touched on that a lot uh, in that video, and it is certainly worth a read. Even to someone that's not gone to, to university for economics, I think you'll still get a lot out of it because you have a fantastic way of making things simple even for even for a big dum-dum like me it was uh, absolutely fantastic so uh darren at Small Blue, thank you so much uh, i've really appreciated this chat well thank you michael those were excellent questions and thanks for giving me an opportunity to be on your show pleasure's all mine